Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Mexico gets its new president on December 1st. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, comes into office as the U.S. pursues a policy of border closures and tear gas to keep asylum seekers inside of Mexico. This presents the incoming president with some tough choices. With me is Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy based in Mexico City. Thanks for joining me, Laura. Thanks, Jerome. It's always good to be on your show. I wanted to ask about uh, AMLO and, you know, everybody was so up in arms on Saturday. The Washington Post had this report that there was going to be a deal between Trump and uh, the Lopez Obrador administration. They'd have a remain in Mexico policy to replace the current system. Um, That it sounds like the administration doesn't want that in Mexico. Um, What's going on there? Oh, it's almost like a perfect storm here because it's a very delicate moment. With The inauguration is this Saturday. And so what Lopez Obrador is trying to do is defuse a very inflammatory situation, really a crisis between the United States and Mexico. And of course, the United States is not just any country to Mexico. We're talking about a country that is responsible for 80% of Mexican foreign trade and has a tremendous amount of leverage. Just to give you an idea how much damage the United States can do to Mexico, the fact that Trump tweeted that he was considering permanently closing the border caused a stock market crash yesterday in Mexico and the peso immediately fell. So suddenly the reserves, you know, the the actual financing of the country suffered this tremendous blow because of a five-word tweet of President Donald Trump. I've been reading a lot about uh, what is happening with the Mexico and uh, this idea for a Marshall Plan to combat Central American migration. Um, What is that about? How does that jive with what's going on on the border? The Marshall Plan is this proposal for a kind of a more long-term solution to the Central American migration by incoming President López Obrador. What he's saying is that the United States will provide funding, mostly private sector, facilitate private sector funding to develop southern Mexico and create the ability through increased employment to absorb numbers of Central Americans. He's also proposed something similar for Central America that would be financed jointly by the United States and Mexico. The the problem is that this already exists, and it's called the Alliance for Prosperity, and it hasn't worked because basically of the type of projects that they're looking to fund. They're looking at these mega projects that are actually displacing communities in Central America without taking a deeper look at what kind of development needs to be done so people are allowed to be to remain at home and also the problem of violence. And then, Jerome, really quickly, I wanted to go back to the Stay, at, Stay in Mexico program and another program that's related called the Third Safe Country because this has been a big debate down here. What they're pressuring Mexico to do is to take all these asylum seekers. And of course, you know that it's not illegal to seek asylum. Even if you cross the border illegally, you have the legal right under international law to seek asylum when you're fleeing a situation of persecution. And so what they're saying is that Mexico has to keep these asylum seekers while they're awaiting their hearings in the United States, 
which with the backlog that the United States has has right now could be a year to two years. So Mexico up to now has said, no way. Number one, we don't have the capacity to keep, have so many people on our border. And number two, you know, why should we re- be responsible for a broken immigration and asylum system in the United States that instead of fixing the United States is just doing these publicity stunts on the border with the militarization and everything. So it's a big debate, but Lopez Obrador has been hinting that he'll accept the agreement because it's so important for Mexico to go into his administration with at least an apparently good relationship with the United States. Well, is he going to accept the agreement in order to get more of what he wants with a Marshall Plan kind of idea that he can sell? I don't know, because when it first came out, the incoming Secretary of the Interior, Olga Sanchez, denied it, but kind of in a wishy-washy way. Um, there's a possibility, but it's it's a real affront to national sovereignty. And national sovereignty is a big deal for this incoming president, and it's a big deal for Donald Trump as well, of course, but only when that regards U.S. national sovereignty. You know, for another country to accept the burden of asylum seekers, you know, to its neighboring country just doesn't really make any sense in terms of its own interests. There is a possibility that there could be that kind of a quid pro quo. But again, the problem is it, it, there's no insurances, assurances because what he's asking for is for the Trump administration to facilitate private investment for some of these projects that he wants to carry out in southern Mexico. So there's no real assurances. And there also isn't a great history of U.S. investment in projects in Mexico in terms of actually benefiting Mexico. I'm talking with Laura Carlson. She's director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy based in Mexico City. And we're talking about what's happening uh, along the border between the U.S. and Mexico and some of uh, Mexico's policies of the incoming uh, president on Saturday, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Uh, You know, it seems like the... um, the whole idea that Mexico can absorb some of these uh, migrants is something that is being deeply thought about in Mexico. And it, it sounds like Mexico doesn't have a big history of, of really trying to do that. They've certainly deported lots of people in the past from Central America. Is, this, is there a, a different kind of debate about that thing going on right now? Yeah, it's kind of a confusing debate because it depends on how far back you go. If you look at the dirty wars in Central America in the 80s, what you see is that Mexico took in a lot of refugees. And then if you look at the rate of refugees that Mexico is taking in today, it's way below any the rate of many countries throughout the world. Mexico does, in fact have the capacity to absorb these refugees for two reasons. First of all, what we're seeing is not really an invasion, the way Donald Trump is describing. The United States also has the capacity to take in these people who are fleeing persecution. If you look at what's happening in the United States, the apprehensions at the border have actually dropped precipitously. And the number of refugees that have come up over the past month is estimated at about 17,000. But the thing is that it's it's not all that much above what's been the, the norm 
for the last couple of years. Now, why do I say that? I say that because what the big change is, is not even so much in the numbers. It's in the way that they're migrating. Instead of coming up in a steady stream that makes them alone and vulnerable to organized crime, they decided to gather together in this big group in San Pedro Sula that snowballed as it moved along, and they ended up coming into Mexico and traveling through Mexico as this huge group that was kind of self-governed instead of in the hands of human smugglers. This is really the big change, and it's because it's become so dangerous to migrate in Mexico with the degree of organized crime and violence that exists here in Mexico. So we've got two problems. You know, we've got this change in the form of migration rather than in the numbers themselves, and we've got this problem that the situation turned so dangerous in Mexico that they that they created these huge groups, and then they fed into this image created by a white supremacist government and agenda in the United States of an invasion or a huge... I'm talking with Laura Carlson, and she is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy. And Laura's been based in Mexico City for many years, and we talk with her frequently on the program. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, the dangers and the politicized dangers that uh, happen to people in Mexico, because Donald Trump always, when he's using his rhetoric, turns them around on his side and says, well, there's horrible things happening to these people. We've got to have this, uh, this migration stopping. They're, they're women who are, are, are having problems and getting raped and uh, people who are getting robbed. And this is, uh, this is all bad. Uh, this is, um, how does that play down in there in Mexico? There are considerable dangers who are on the migration trail here. Basically, what happens is that they're in the hands of both corrupt state officials and federal officials and in the hands of organized crime. So they're subject to extortion. There's an estimate by Amnesty International that some 60% of women are raped along the way. There are beatings and there are even assassinations, as well as the dangers of riding the trains and just being on the trails and having to migrate through remote areas since the militarization of of Mexico's southern border. What Donald Trump does not factor into this equation is what they're running from. The situations in Central America, and particularly Honduras, where most of these migrants are from, are so bad now that these people just feel like they can do nothing but leave, even though they know the dangers that they'll confront traveling through Mexico and also kind of the slimness of their possibilities of actually making it to family, in most cases, in the United States. They're coming from situations where gangs can be saying, you know, if your son doesn't join the gang, we're going to kill the entire family tomorrow. They're coming from situations of immediate death threats and of constant violence, as well as a political crisis in Honduras since the fraudulent election of Juan Orlando Hernandez a year ago today. So it's it's uh, they have no place to go. And the only thing they can do is hold on to this dream of somewhere getting someplace where they can raise their families in peace. I know that uh, while the group of migrants traveled uh, across Mexico, you had a chance to uh, meet with them in Mexico City. You were talking with people who have plans to work with them in the state of Chiapas. Uh, what, what was that like? 
Well, they were heartrending stories because you begin to see these as human beings, which is what's necessary in the rhetoric in the United States as well, and understand that they've been placed in a situation of no options. And while what they're trying to do seems so hopeless from a realistic point of view, you know, with 10% or less of these asylum petitions accepted in the United States, a backlog of hundreds of thousands, and uh, in a very precarious, to say the least, situation here in Mexico. You know, it seems so unrealistic to us, but to them, it's the only realistic way forward. Like Wendy Wendy Rodriguez, an Afro-Honduran from the Atlantic coast, whose son was beaten up and then threatened if he didn't join the gangs. She tried to take him to another city. They followed him there, and he was in the same situation, and finally she had to leave. Or Walter Cuello, who was a taxi driver in Tegucigalpa and was being extorted by four different gangs so that at the end of the work week, he had no money left. Wow. You know, I guess there's been so much emphasis on uh, what happened at the the border in San Diego with people using tear gas. And uh, I understand Mexico has is calling for a thorough investigation of this. And what how does that play into all negotiating a policy with the United States? Well, at least it keeps present the idea that any kind of a policy has to place human rights first. The use of tear gas was unnecessary. There were many people who were injured um, by the canisters themselves. And you saw the pictures of families fleeing the tear gas. Uh, and, and there's a real need to confront this vision that these refugees are a threat to national security in the United States. As far as working out a policy, it just has to be kept in mind. And unfortunately, even some of the international organizations have been a little weak on this messaging that these are individuals who have rights under international conventions and international law to seek asylum and to escape uh, situations of danger in their home countries. And it also has to be kept in mind that the home countries themselves and the leaders of those countries have responsibility in this situation, and nobody's really talking about that. The government of Juan Orlando Hernandez is an illegitimate government, and there needs to be something done about that. The international community failed the Honduran people after the elections, the illegal re-election of Juan Orlando. And now it's time to revisit that situation and try to figure out how true democracies can be built there uh, and and a real path to development where people don't want to have to leave because they don't want to have to leave. You know, it, it seems unlikely the Trump administration is going to do anything about like that. Uh, they're, they're completely focused on this catch and uh, detain policy. They don't like catch and release. They don't want uh, people who are seeking asylum to have, you know, be in the United States for years while, they're, while their cases are decided. Uh, uh, they're doing everything they can to restrict this kind of thing. Yeah, you know, Jerome, at the beginning, when, when we saw that uh, the fact that these people were migrating in a large group and they arrived at the Mexican border was becoming a wedge issue in the U.S. midterms, 
it was clear that this story was not going to end well. Uh, this whole change in migratory patterns has fed straight into the white supremacist agenda of the Trump administration. It's now causing a rise in racism and xenophobia here in Mexico as well. Although the general attitude, and this has to be said, of Mexican people along the migrant caravan route has been one of solidarity. But we are seeing the other reaction, particularly since they got to Tijuana with a conservative mayor making very xenophobic statements there. So Donald Trump is going to continue to use this. Now what we've seen is the midterms are over and he's using it to try to force Congress to fund the wall, yep. saying that they're, yeah, they're going to try to uh, you know, flood into the United States. And it's always these very dehumanizing images of who these refugee families are. Laura Carlson is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy based in Mexico City. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the policy choices facing Mexico's new president. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with Stephen Walt, and we'll discuss how the American foreign policy elites have failed us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. At the end of the Cold War, U.S. foreign policy looked pretty rosy. Now the U.S. is mired in long-running conflicts, and there's plenty of frustration about the U.S. role in the world. Stephen Walt has some ideas about what went wrong. His book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite, and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. Thanks for joining us, Stephen Walt. Great it's to have you in person. It's a pleasure to be back in Chicago. Uh, Stephen Walt is at Harvard now after being at the University of Chicago for many years, and he also writes for Foreign Policy, a very um, instructive column there. I wanted to ask, first of all, about um, the blob, America's foreign policy elite, as it's become known. You are fond of the Ben Rhodes term, uh, Ben Rhodes, the Obama administration advisor who, who calls the foreign policy elite the blob. Why is it like that? Why is the blob the blob? Um, well, I think it tells you a lot about politics in, in many democracies, but certainly in American democracy. By the foreign policy elite, uh, what uh, Ben Rhodes probably uh, tactlessly called the blob, a rather amorphous but identifiable uh, set of people. These are the people who do foreign policy for a living, who do it as an active part of their uh, daily professional lives. So this would include the formal institutions of government, the Department of State, Department of Defense, the intelligence agencies, uh, the people on Capitol Hill who work on foreign policy. That's not everybody. Uh, certainly, you would add the think tank world in Washington. And I think that's what Rhodes was referring to. So people at places like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Carnegie Endowment, the Brookings Institution, and many, many, many other smaller organizations. There's a whole series of lobbies often connected to think tanks working on arms control or human rights or a particular part of the world or various things like that. And finally, I would add in um, media those parts of the media that work on foreign affairs, columnists, pundits, uh, reporters, 
And finally, people like me, academics who work on foreign policy for a living, who teach people who go into government, sometimes serve in government themselves. Well, what is wrong with the blob? Because you're very harsh about it. You call it um, today's foreign policy elite is a dysfunctional cast of privileged insiders who are frequently disdainful of alternative perspectives and insulated both professionally and personally from the consequences of the policies they promote. That's basically right. So it's an interesting community in a couple of sense. First of all, there are no membership requirements. You don't have to pass the bar exam. You don't have to take a medical board certification to practice foreign policy. Uh, There's no actually required degree. It sometimes helps, but uh, it's not required. What you have to do is convince other people, preferably senior people, in the establishment that you're smart, loyal, energetic, you've got something to contribute. The second thing about this uh, world is it's a community. Uh, These are groups and organizations where everybody knows everybody else. And the higher you get, the more you tend to know everybody and you serve on the same commissions and you're part of the same elite networks. And um, and that means that your reputation really becomes all important. Uh, to, To rise and to remain within the establishment, you have to conform to a certain set of consensus views. And if you stray outside those consensus views, um, you're likely to be marginalized. People will start to wonder if you're maybe unsound or unreliable or whatever. What this means is that within the blob, there's an awful lot of things that don't get said, a lot of issues that don't get debated. And in particular, the idea that the United States has to exert constant global leadership, that we really have to be running the show and very importantly, constantly promoting American values around the world is perhaps the most powerful part of that elite consensus. I want to just make one final point. It's not that people in the establishment agree on absolutely everything. They disagree on whether or not to get involved in Syria. They disagreed about the Iran deal, for example. But the general consensus behind using American power in almost every corner of the world to actively promote American values and the need for constant American global leadership, I think, is an article of faith amongst almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone in that group. Isn't that supposition basically something the U.S. um, inherited there at the end of the Cold War? We were supposed to go out there and remake the world like us so that we would have a peaceful world, a world where commerce would be good, where people could be represented in their governments. This was the good intention there. There's no question about this. At the end of the Cold War, the United States did, in fact, have a choice, right? It could have given itself a high five, taken a victory lap, and said, we no longer need to have uh, American forces stationed on every continent. We no longer need to be actively promoting American values everywhere. Uh, We can start devolving responsibility in certain areas, particularly to other democracies uh, and to our close allies. Because after all, we were in great shape, so there was kind of no need to go off and do more. Instead, beginning with the Clinton administration, we decided to adopt a strategy that I and some others have called liberal hegemony. Uh, Liberal, not in the sense of being left-wing, but in the sense of promoting classical liberal values, markets, democracy, human rights, rule of law. It's hegemony because this is all going to get done with American power. The United States is going to lead this process. As Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, you know, famously put it, we are the indispensable power that sees farther uh, than others do. And beginning in the 1990s, but really continuing all the way through the Obama administration, uh, that has been the default grand strategy that the United States has followed, using its power to try and remake the world in America's image. 
I guess the problem with that strategy is when are you done? Because you might never be done. You're never really going to get the whole world to be remade in your image. That's a tough road to hoe. Yeah, and we're, we're not likely even to get close. Um, I mean, there are several dilemmas here. First of all, just note that this idea is a very revisionist strategy. It's not about protecting America and maybe working to shape events in a couple of key areas because they're strategically important. This is basically about saying that we want to shape local politics everywhere it's not a democracy, everywhere it's not pretty much like us, and we want to bring all these countries into a set of institutions that we've made and designed. Well, first of all, non-democracies, China, for example, Russia, uh, Iran, Syria, are going to feel threatened by this, and they can come up with ways to try and thwart us, make our lives difficult, as indeed uh, they have. Second, as I think we've learned now time and time again, you can overthrow a dictatorship, but then the question is, what do you do afterwards? And I think it's been uh, shown in Iraq and in Libya and in Afghanistan and in Yemen and in lots of other places that we're not very good at this kind of massive social engineering, uh, that in fact what you get is a failed state or a costly occupation, not a thriving democracy. And finally, doing this all over the world uh, creates a sort of a global structure, uh, which people sometimes like to refer to as a liberal order, that's very dependent on the United States doing the right thing all over the world all the time. And I guess I would argue that we're not that wise. We're not going to be able to manage global politics. And the last 25 years has shown, in fact, that we do a pretty bad job. I'm talking with Stephen Waltz about his book, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. How did all these guys get it so wrong, this foreign policy elite? Why did they have this aggressive uh, global uh, stance that you know, was just really hard to back up? Well, I think there's several reasons for it. Um, first of all, the 1990s, when you think about it, were a period of great optimism. And people really did think that the wind was at our back, that everything was going our way. Not surprisingly, relations with Russia and China in the 90s were actually pretty good. Democracy was spreading in Eastern Europe and in Latin America. Markets were expanding uh, around the world. Iraq was being disarmed by UN inspectors. Iran had zero nuclear centrifuges back in the 90s. And remember, the Oslo process comes along and we all think peace is going to break out in the Middle East. So it's understandable that people, you know, really thought this was going to be easy to do, that history really was moving in our direction. Uh, Franz Fukuyama, a, a terrific scholar, wrote this famous uh, article and book about reaching the end of history, you know, sort of American-style liberal capitalism is the only game in town now. Um, so it's not surprising that we sort of succumb to this. But I think the other reason, of course, is this gave the foreign policy elite a big mission, uh, really something to do, greater command on resources. I think many people in, this, uh, in the blob genuinely believe in these principles and think spreading them would be good for the United States and good for the rest of the world. And then finally, and I do talk about this at some length in the book, um, the elite is something of a self-protecting community as well that doesn't hold itself accountable. So even when some of these projects failed or backfired or had negative unintended consequences, the people who came up with them uh, were not replaced and the ideas that they used to justify them were never questioned. Let's talk about uh, accountability in the blob. You know, you cite in the book a document that you signed, you and 32 other scholars, right before the Iraq War and said, this is not in the national interest. Uh, we are prominent people. Uh, we are thinkers. We, we encourage you not to do this Iraq War thing. And um, you mentioned that 
none of these guys have gone on to work in government. None of the 32 of you have ever gone on to work in government or anything. Um, and that's right. And I think uh, with one partial exception, none of his even advised a presidential campaign. Um, and moreover, although many of the people on that list are in prominent academic positions, are actively part of the public debate on foreign affairs, it's not like they've been uh, sealed away in a bunker someplace or anything like that. It is striking that none of them have uh, been invited to come to Washington, asked to uh, advise a presidential candidate, uh, things like that. Uh, well, the people who came up with the crazy idea of invading Iraq have continued to remain in prominent positions in Washington, in prominent positions inside the blob, served in the Bush administration, uh, didn't do particularly well there in many cases. But one of them, John Bolton, is now our national security advisor. So I use this and a number of other examples as evidence that as long as you stay inside the consensus – and don't question, uh, you know, sort of where the country is headed, you can continue to thrive and prosper, even if most of the policies you recommend uh, blow up. On the contrary, if you stray outside that consensus, it's going to be harder to get a hearing, and you're not likely to thrive in that world. Well, is it strange that people can't seem to hold the government accountable for these things, that these people, uh, their appointments, uh, you know, the head of the CIA is somebody who was involved in the torture scandal. You, you would think that that would be unacceptable, but uh, these things just continually go on right in front of people and they seem to have no leverage to do something. Yeah, I think that's partly because, again, even now, most Americans do not put foreign policy front and center most of the time. It takes a real uh, disaster to get most Americans to focus. Uh, there's local issues that they tend to focus much more on. Secondly, uh, government institutions have something of an asymmetry of information. Uh, it's not a complete monopoly, but lots of things remain secret. We still don't know, for example, exactly what the CIA did. The uh, Senate investigation into torture by the CIA has never been made public. So it's hard to hold the current director of the CIA accountable when we don't actually know as a matter of public record uh, what was done. And I think for both of those reasons, a certain amount of public indifference and the elite's ability to control information and control what people think and to continue to praise and exonerate each other regardless of how things go. Uh, that allows the same people to sort of keep doing the same jobs over and over even when they're not doing them particularly well. I'm talking with Stephen Waltz about his book, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking today with Stephen Walt. He is the author of The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy, Elite, and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. He is a professor at Harvard, and he writes at the foreign policy website on a regular basis. Well, we were talking before the break about what went wrong. And in the book, you've got some ideas about what to do about it and what kind of foreign policy we should have. 
and you suggest something called offshore balancing. What is that? Um, it's an alternative grand strategy. I would argue it's basically the strategy that the United States followed for much of the 20th century, including the Cold War. Uh, offshore, it's a realist strategy. It focuses primarily on the balance of power in the world. And it argues that first, the United States is incredibly secure, uh, powerful military, uh, diverse economy. We are separated from the other major power centers by two enormous oceans, no powerful enemies nearby. In that sense, the United States in geopolitical terms is in great shape. As a result, the only thing that can really threaten uh, the United States, apart from things like climate change, but in terms of foreign policy, the only thing that could threaten the United States is the emergence of a genuine peer competitor, a country as big and as powerful as we are, particularly if that country dominated its region the same way we dominate the Western Hemisphere, where we have no enemies. That's what allows us to wander all over the world, getting into trouble in places like Afghanistan or the Middle East or elsewhere. Well, if another country uh, was in a similar position where they didn't have to worry about protecting their own territory, they would be free to project power around the world like we do possibly into the Western Hemisphere and completely altering America's position. So the United States entered World War I to keep Germany from dominating Europe. It entered World War II to keep Germany and Japan from dominating their regions. And it fought the Cold War to keep the Soviet Union from dominating Europe or Asia. That's what offshore balancing is. We stay out if there's no threat to the balance of power. But if there is a threat, then the United States sometimes has to get involved. If you apply that to the current situation, it means the United States should be focusing primarily on balancing China in Asia because that's the only potential peer competitor on the horizon. It means we can do much less in Europe and we should be staying out of the Middle East. Now, in theory, this would save the United States some money. And you talk about the other things we can and should be doing with our money. Quite obviously, there are needs in the United States. How much would you cut the defense budget? Would you cut it in half? Do you think you got half in you? Uh, I think you could probably cut it, say, 40%. I mean, this is not an isolationist strategy, and the United States will have to focus more attention on balancing uh, China and Asia, assuming China continues to grow. That's going to require uh, naval and air power that we can project into Asia if necessary. Um, so this is not an argument for sort of radical uh, disarmament, and it's certainly not an argument for disengagement from the entire world or, or isolationism. The United States would still have diplomatic relations with everyone. It would still trade and invest around the world as it does today. In fact, I would even argue we should be placing much more emphasis on diplomacy than we do now, uh, where we tend to think of diplomacy as the last resort and coercion as our first resort. But yeah, it, this would definitely uh, save us a certain amount of money. The United States today uh, is spending you know, still more than the next eight countries or so put together. And again, that's not for the purpose of defending American soil or upholding the balance of power, say, in uh, one or two key areas, uh, that's to allow us to project power into lots of different parts of the world, as indeed we are doing on a daily basis. But you would keep most of the bases in Asia, the Okinawas, the... South Korea is the... Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I think given the potential for China to emerge as a serious rival to the United States, I would maintain our current alliance relations with Asia. I would, of course, be pushing Asian countries to do more in their own defense, and that would involve a certain amount of hard-nosed uh, diplomacy. The United States uh, should gradually be turning European security over to the Europeans, who are uh, wealthy, uh, easily capable of mustering the military forces they need to defend themselves. 
just as a footnote, I would add that, you know, the European members of NATO spend three to four times what Russia does on defense every year, three to four times. So the idea that they need a lot of American help to defend themselves against Russia is indeed that much of a danger, I think, doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. And then finally, uh, in the Middle East, where we've been bogged down now for a quarter century or so, we should have normal relations with every country in the Middle East. Uh, we should maintain the rapid deployment force in case we ever had to go there. But we should keep American forces out of the Middle East unless one country looks like it's about to take the place over. And fortunately, there's no country in the Middle East that's even close to doing that now. Uh, it's about as divided as it's ever been. Do you think things could get worse in the Middle East and you know, things could get further destabilized? Any kind of uh, thing could happen. Iran, Saudi Arabia, the rivalry. Could things get out of hand if the U.S. left? Uh, well, remember, the thing that's caused most of the instability in the Middle East over the last 25 years has been American policy, right? The first Gulf War back in 1991 did restore, I think, a, a balance of power in the Gulf. But the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 began a process of destabilization. Uh, groups like ISIS would never have emerged had the United States not knocked off Saddam, which, of course, by the way, also was a great boon uh, to Iran. American intervention in Somalia, in Libya and in Yemen has all had deeply destabilizing consequences. And people often forget, but we were involved in Syria once the uprising began there. We did not stay out of that one. We were helping the anti-Assad forces in various ways, not very effectively. But it's hard to argue that the United States could do worse. And I would just add one other point. You know, our current relationship in the Middle East, which has continued under President Trump, is to back the same set of allies, Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia, etc., and to back them pretty much unconditionally. No matter what they do, we support them. And of course, that's what's given us this humanitarian disaster in Yemen, uh, the inability to achieve a, a peace settlement between Israel and the Palestinians. Again, that's why I call for having a normal relationship with these countries, and by the way, also with Iran, rather than having a special relationship with some countries of unconditional support and no relations at all with some other important countries in the region. The U.S. has lots of bases in the Middle East, uh, in Honduras, in Guantanamo. We have a base in Cuba. Could we roll out of those and save some dough and... Yeah, I think you have to look at each of those on a more or less case-by-case -case basis. Uh, you know, abandoning an overseas military facility makes sense if it's not serving any strategic purpose and if it's likely to be a sort of, you know, inviting target for people who don't like the United States. Um, but in some cases, you'd want to keep them because you don't actually save that much money by putting the troops someplace else or putting naval forces someplace else where then to get where they're needed, they have to steam further. So I wouldn't call for a sort of across-the-board rolling up of all American engagements abroad, although I think, you know, if this was done over a 10-year period, you would find the United States with a smaller military footprint around the world. When would you intervene? Uh, could we still do things like humanitarian interventions? There are moments in the Arab Spring, you know, President Obama decided I'm, I'm going to help in Libya because I think there is a mass killing that's about to happen. Um, do, are there certain moments where the U.S. is going to be inclined to do something, even though it may not be uh, a big strategic threat to the U.S.? Yeah, I think, first of all, the United States is going to remain very powerful and very influential. And there are going to be moments when we see a 
potential humanitarian disaster unfolding, then we will be tempted to do something about it. And I don't rule that out uh, for purely moral reasons. But I do think uh, you have to set a rather high bar uh, for doing that. In particular, you have to be pretty confident that a really uh, serious problem is unfolding. Uh, Second, you have to believe that you can solve it or address it at an acceptable cost to the American people. It's not going to be incredibly expensive for Americans. And then finally, you have to be convinced that you're not going to make things worse. Right? And I think uh, rightly or wrongly, for example, President Obama chose not to get more deeply involved in Syria, which is admittedly a humanitarian disaster of really wrenching proportions, because he believed that deeper American involvement, uh, say, to overthrow the Assad regime was actually going to make things worse, much as our decision to intervene in Libya ultimately created a failed state. And as bad and as awful as Muammar Gaddafi was, what followed him was no improvement in a variety of different ways. So yes, I don't rule out humanitarian intervention in a number of circumstances, uh, but I would set a pretty high bar for doing it. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Stephen Walt about his book, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. Um, there's a lot of resistance to this idea of offshore balancing within foreign policy circles. It's not a, you know, let's do a little less in the world. Let's set a high bar for intervention. This is not what a lot of people want. Even Donald Trump, who seemed to be really skeptical about U.S. foreign policy, um, came right in and almost did the opposite. He, he um blasted away at the uh, military budget and, you know, is, is going great guns with that and tore apart the State Department. He did kind of the opposite with the same kind of uh, discontent with U.S. foreign policy. Well, I'd say a couple of things. There's no question that uh, what Trump has done is not consistent with what I was calling for. Uh, some of the things he said back in 2016 are a little bit similar. He was very uh, critical of the foreign policy elite, and he was critical of the failures of the last 25 years or so. What he's done as president has been something different, unfortunately. It's worth remembering that the last four presidents, including Trump, all ran for president promising to do less in foreign policy. Bill Clinton, it's the economy, stupid, right? George Bush was going to give us a humble, humble. foreign yeah, policy. And it was very opposed to nation building. Look what he ended up uh, doing. Barack Obama, of course, runs for president on the strength of having opposed the Iraq war. Really, I think, genuinely wants to sort of reshape America's view. But he's trapped because he's the most restrained member of his entire cabinet, really his entire administration. And then finally, you get Trump coming in, having been very critical, and he ends up doing a lot of the same things, sending more troops to uh, Afghanistan the same way that Obama did, appointing someone like John Bolton, getting into uh, yet another confrontation with Iran. My point, though, is that the presidents understand when they run for president that the American people are not near as enthusiastic about this expansive uh, run-the-world approach as the foreign policy elite is. It's only after they become president that they start realizing that in some respects the blob is bigger than they are. Um, and I believe you're not going to see a fundamental change until you get either different people within the foreign policy establishment, which may be a 20 or 25-year process, or some of the people within that establishment really do start rethinking uh, their commitment 
to, again, this policy of trying to transform the entire world. On the political end, I mean, you see people kind of like Ron Paul has some skepticism and people on that uh, end of the libertarian spectrum. And then there's some of the new members of Congress who uh, – Talk a lot about a you know more about a peace dividend and and that kind of thing happening a new green deal being a better idea than spending a lot in the military budget yeah and by the way the sentiments I've been expressing here you see even more uh, evident and apparent among millennials who have a very different view of America's role in the world and just how expansive it really should be um, you could argue there is I, a- you know I saw a young woman uh, she was a high school woman uh, speaking at an event the other night and she said well the, the United States has been at war my whole life. Right. It's been at war my whole life. I don't know any other state of being. If and, we were to have peace, I would not know what it looked like. Right. And none of these wars, by the way, have ended up with ticker tape parades, uh, unconditional surrenders. They've been these open-ended, very unsatisfying. You know, we, we don't want to fight them very hard because – the American people wouldn't support a lot of casualties. But if you're not willing to take any casualties, it's very hard to win them uh, either as well, even if we knew how to sort of do any of that. So it's not surprising that the student uh, you met had that view. You could argue there's something of a coalition that could emerge among sort of libertarians who like a small government and among realists like me who like a smart foreign policy and people say on the progressive left who want more resources devoted to problems here at home, of which there is uh, no shortage. Those groups don't agree on a lot of other questions, but they might all agree on this. And I do think that there are some powerful external forces that are pushing in this direction too, that I do think the rise of China is going to focus American attention, however slowly and crudely, uh, primarily on Asia. I think the political uh, trends in the Middle East are going to make Americans extremely reluctant to be deeply engaged uh, there for a variety of reasons, Uh, whether it's what's going on in Saudi Arabia now, uh, what's uh, the political evolution of Israel, which is now causing questions. I think, and more tensions between the United States uh, and Israel, etc. So I can imagine over the next 20 or 25 years, the United States is in fact going to gradually shift towards a set of policies pretty much like the ones I outline in my book. And I wrote the book so that that process takes, you know, 15 years rather than 25. Um, but right now, there's really no political leader who we, we will expect to run in the next election who will, I don't know. I, I think that's not clear. I think the people who have voiced similar sentiments in the past have tended to come with a certain amount of additional baggage. Uh, I would put, you know, sort of Ron Paul in that category and therefore were never really viable candidates. I don't think Bernie Sanders could have won in 2016. That may be a controversial view among his supporters. I don't think he will be the candidate or would win in 2020. But he did galvanize a lot of support, a surprising amount when you think about it. And a candidate who was smart and sort of a centrist on many other issues, but was also advocating for a more strategically sensible uh, foreign policy, I think would attract a lot of support. What about the resistance in the community itself? It defends itself rather vigorously and it defends against Donald Trump uh, very well because they want something very different than Donald Trump and um, they are the opposition to Trump. Um, The blob, you know, we're rooting for the deep state to win against Donald Trump or something. Yeah, there is a sort of irony in all of that. And I say this in the, in the book that ultimately this does involve, I think, a, almost a grassroots movement to grow 
not an entirely different elite, but an elite that has a broader perspective, where the consensus views are not quite so narrow, or at a minimum, where there's a broader debate about different policies. And I think one can look back at various points in our history where uh, groups got organized to push a particular agenda, and they didn't get everything they wanted, but they were able to broaden the conversation. Uh, I don't always agree with all of these groups, but you know, an example would be the Federalist Society, which 30, 40 years ago began to organize to try and change the way the law was practiced or interpreted in the United States. It's not like they've gotten everything they wanted, but they've clearly shaped policy in a variety of ways. You could point to the neoconservative movement emerging and shifting American foreign policy, shifting the debate and gradually getting some, not all, of its ideas accepted. And so I think a similar thing has to happen now, that a sort of almost realist grassroots movement has to come up so that the foreign policy elite becomes a bit more intellectually diverse than it has been in recent years. That does not happen overnight, and it may not even succeed. But I think that's the way uh, I hope things go. Stephen Waltz, the author of The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. Thanks a lot for joining us, and uh, we look forward to talking with you further in the future. You're writing all the time at the Foreign Policy website. I enjoy your columns and teaching at Harvard University. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. Thanks again. The U.S. currently detains around 14,000 undocumented children. Faith groups have been protesting at a remote tent facility in Tornillo, Texas. We'll find out more from a couple tomorrow who's just back from their second trip to Tornillo. Hope you can join us for Worldview tomorrow. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ.